Welcome to the For Love of Space podcast. I'm Paul Beatty. If you find yourself looking into the sky with awe and wonder, then this is the place for you. I'm not a scientist, physicist, or even an astronomer, but I am a guy who has an unquenchable love for anything and everything that has to do with space. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the journey. Hey everybody, welcome back for the love of space. Uh, this is our 10th episode, so woohoo, milestone there. Yeah, I want to welcome everybody that's listening in uh, other places in the world. Uh, for those of you just tuning in, this is maybe your first time. I'm broadcasting out of uh, beautiful Dallas, Texas in the U.S. of A. Uh, but I know I also have some listeners out there in Canada and uh, Ireland and um, India and a couple other couple other places so if you're back again welcome back i'm sure glad you tuned in i had a read a really interesting article the other day and it kind of made me stop and think a little bit uh kind of um oh kind of remembrance if you will uh back in 1977 um i guess i was what probably in the ninth or tenth grade back then uh, ninth grade probably well the big news of the day um, at least the spa- big space news of the day, was the uh, launching of uh, two different spacecraft. Not at the same time, they were in different months, but same year. And that was the uh, the Voyagers. And you had Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. And the reason I thought about them, now, you know, I don't, I don't just sit around and just wonder, I wonder what happened to the Mariners and the Pioneers and I, you know, I actually do that once every once in a while. But the reason I thought about them is I was saw an article that was talking about um, the repairs that were going on with the communication antenna that they used to communicate with Voyager 2. There's different um, ways to communicate with the satellites depending on where they are in the world. The uh, Voyager 1 spacecraft um, communicates a little different than Voyager 2. Uh, Voyager 1 has no uh, excuse me, Voyager 1 has contact with the Northern Hemisphere, so we can use some of the uh, systems that we have in place in this hemisphere. But Voyager 2 uh, does not have contact with the Northern Hemisphere, so it relies on a, a single uh, antenna in the Southern Hemisphere to uh, communicate with. And it had to go under some um, refurbishing, some upgrading so it was out of communication with Voyager 2 for um, a few months, and then they reestablished contact with it. So it was pretty exciting. Uh, it made, really makes you stop and think um, and how utterly remarkable it is when you think about how fast technology grows right now uh, and how obsolete things become so quickly. Uh, you get the latest and greatest, you know, iPhone, and it's almost obsolete before you get it on a home and un- unwrapped it, coming out with a new model, updated model, faster processors, and 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 everything. So you think about the Voyagers, and they're still talking to these guys, right? These are uh, satellite spacecraft that were launched in 1977, and they're still talking to them in 2020. That, that's a mind blower, right? It's 43 years, and they're still able to communicate with these satellites uh, or, or spacecraft. And, and not only communicate with them, uh, but 
also have them respond to commands. Um, it, it's just real good testament to to uh, the science behind it, the engineers, technicians that worked on these things and continue to work on them, uh, software developers, that find a way to integrate new technology with old technology and to make it work. So we're going to um, get in our Wayback Machine, and that's a throwback to any of our uh, Mr. Peabody lovers here. And don't deny it, you love your Mr. Peabody. I know you do. Never a big Sherman fan. He was kind of a dunce, but had to love Mr. Peabody. So we're going to set our Wayback Machine to the year 1977 and see how this all began and where are they now. So what are the Voyagers? And why are there two of them? Well, originally, uh, the two spacecraft were part of the Mariner program, and they're originally named Mariner 11 and 12. And what the Mariner program was about at that time was what they called the Planetary Grand Tour. And this was going on in the um, 60s and the early 70s. There was an original proposal to send four spacecraft out to do basically the same science the same type of mission just with more spacecraft uh, they thought that that would be necessary to be able to visit all of the planets within our solar system well that was extremely costly and it didn't get funded it didn't get approved so they took advantage uh, something that doesn't happen very often in fact it only happens about every 175 years or so and that's in alignment of the planets Saturn, Jupiter, Neptune and uh, Uranus. So what happens is the way the planets are aligned they were able to figure that they could use the planets as a uh, gravity assist which would help them go from one planet to another kind of a slingshot effect and they can do it with less fuel and they can also do it faster. So they built the two Voyagers. Uh, they're identical in their build, uh, but their missions were slightly different. And they were only funded to last originally to only last five years. So again, 43 years later, we're still talking about them. So they've way outlived their and outperformed their original mission and lifespan. And they've done so much more science than they were originally uh, set out to do. So it's just been crazy. Well, let's look at each one in more detail. I'm going to talk about Voyager 2 first. Uh, it's kind of funny, even though it's Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. Voyager 2 is actually launched first. And when you look up Voyager and you look up the Voyager mission, Voyager 2 is the one that gets most of the, most of the talk. Um, it actually uh, visited more planets and got a lot closer to the planets that it visited. And even though it's, um, it took longer in its trajectory, the way they sent it out, than Voyager 1, uh, it did a lot more, has seen a lot more. Uh, so we'll keep up with both of them, but Voyager 2, we're really going to expand on a little more. So on August 20th of 1977, Voyager 2 was launched from Cape Canaveral. It was originally designed to look at the Jovian system, one to visit Jupiter, uh, and also Saturn, and they were hoping that if they calculated everything correctly, 
that they could also get it out to Neptune and then uh, Uranus. Scientists kind of had it in their back pocket that uh, if Voyager 1, which you'll we'll talk about a little more in depth here in a minute, but Voyager 1 basically was sent out in a different trajectory to also visit Saturn and Jupiter. And um, so the scientists knew that if we had two of these guys running out there, if for some reason Saturn, or excuse me, Voyager 1 um, wasn't able to complete its mission, that they could redirect Voyager 2 and take over that mission. Well, as we'll find out, neither one of them failed their mission. They both succeeded um, greatly. So Voyager 2 successfully made the trip uh, through the Jovian system and sent back spectacular images of Jupiter and its moons, especially uh, the moons Callisto, Ganymede, Europa, and Io. And although the, um, it was already visited by Voyager 1, like I said, they both went to Saturn and, and Jupiter, Voyager made closer flybys, and having a closer flyby just great, gave us more uh, in-depth and greater um, imagery and uh, data, um, more detail, right? And it also discovered four previously unknown moons that were around uh, Jupiter. So really cool. After visiting Jupiter, uh, Voyager 2 then uh, was directed towards Saturn. And the trajectory used made it possible to continue to uh, Uranus and Neptune later that same decade. So they were able to take advantage of that alignment of the planets. And so far, everything's working really well. Again, like uh, on Jupiter, Voyager 1 had already visited Saturn before Voyager 2 got there. But Voyager 2 was able to get closer and provide additional data on Saturn's atmosphere. It's more, more information about its rings. Uh, discovered another ring system at Saturn. I uh, was able to detect some of the thickness of some of the rings, uh, which weren't done before, and the moons of Saturn. So now if you fast forward about four and a half years, Voyager 2 arrives at uh, Uranus. And it was, at that time, the first human-made object to fly past uh, Uranus. So pretty exciting. There was a lot of, um, you know, comets and asteroids and things that went by uh, Uranus. But this is the first human-made, man-made object to ever fly past uh, Uranus. So extremely exciting. And when it flew by Uranus, it also discovered 10 new moons that were uh, circling uh, Uranus. Uh, they named them Puck, Portia, Juliet, Cressida, Rosalind, uh, Desdemona, Cordelia, Ophelia and Bianca. Uh, so obviously, uh, scientists were greatly into Shakespeare at that time, since that's all Shakespearean um, characters. And following a course correction in 1986, the spacecraft uh, set its sights on Neptune. Now, Voyager 2 at this time is traveling over 4.3 billion miles. And it finally approached Neptune in 1989. So this is 12 years later. Remember, this was only originally funded for five years. So this is seven years past its original mission objective. So still going strong. Uh, so remarkably, after that 12 years since it originally launched, all of its 10 instruments that were originally equipped on the spacecraft are still operational, which is just another amazing feat. 
It did discover six new moons, uh, Proteus, Larissa, Despinia, Galadia, Thalassa, and Naiad. Neptune was also discovered to have six additional rings. So this was the last of Voyager's planetary encounters. So as Voyager continued its way across our solar system, um, in order to conserve power, fuel, um, two of the instruments were put in low power mode. And, and they didn't do that right away. They did it after it traveled an additional 35 million miles uh, from where it was at uh, Neptune. But in November of 1998, uh, all but seven of the instruments were uh, just shut down completely. At this time, spacecraft was at the four reaches of the solar system and had been traveling for 21 years. So going back to one of our previous episodes, if you guys remember talking about the heliosphere, the heliopause, the heliosheath, um, that's an area where the sun's influence, the solar wind, uh, is no longer felt, right? When you first uh, go through or enter the, uh, the heliosphere, you go through that, uh, the, your termination shock, uh, and you enter the heliosheath, um, they did that, Voyager 2 did that in August 30th of 2007. So it is way, way out there. And then in 2018, Voyager 2 became the only second spacecraft. Can you guess what the first spacecraft was? Yep, Voyager 1. In history, to leave the heliosphere and enter interstellar space. So interstellar space, of course, is just that region between the stars. It still has uh, five operating instruments that continue to send data back to us at this time. Spacecraft's still going strong. Uh, it's traveling at about 9.6 miles uh, per second. And it's estimated to be about 11.6 billion miles from the Earth. So, wow. So let's uh, talk briefly about Voyager's lesser acclaimed twin, Voyager 1. And uh, like we uh, mentioned earlier, although it's named Voyager 1, it was actually launched after Voyager 2. And it was launched uh, from Cape Canaveral on September 5th. Its modest mission was to explore the Jovian and Satyrian systems and to find more about their moons, uh, which it did. And even though it was launched after Voyager 2, it did take a different trajectory. And it actually arrived at Saturn and Jupiter before Voyager 2, which we mentioned. And like its twin, uh, Voyager 1 made flybys of both Jupiter and Saturn, but unlike its twin, it didn't visit uh, any of the other planets in our solar system. It also took a different trajectory than Voyager 2, and then both ex and then and though both exited the heliosphere, uh, they did it in different locations and at different years. Voyager 1 actually exited the heliosphere and entered interstellar space in 2012. So it's got a bit of a head start over its twin. So just a quick recap of the finding of the, uh, the Voyager spacecraft. And most of this, again, is Voyager 2. Uh, it's the first spacecraft to study all four of the giant planets at close range. Voyager 2 discovered a 14th moon at Jupiter. Voyager 2 was the first human-made object to fly past Uranus. At Uranus, Voyager 2 discovered 10 new moons and two new rings. 
It was the first human-made object to fly by Neptune. And at Neptune, Voyager 2 also discovered five moons, four rings, and it also discovered the great dark spots. We knew about uh, Jupiter having the great red spot, but at that time, we didn't know about uh, Neptune also having a uh, spot, uh, but it was darker in color, so they called it, you know, the great dark spot. Not a lot of imagination, but it works. So again, it was just uh, really just piqued my interest that um, these two spacecraft, which we launched so long ago, 43 years ago, are still not just floating through space, just drifting um, mindlessly, if you will, but they're communicating, they're responding to commands. Uh, They send them course corrections uh, now and again uh, in order to receive the data and for the uh, spacecraft to receive commands from us, the antenna has to be pointing toward the Earth. And sometimes um, because of different forces that get acted on them, they can, um, that can change, that, that attitude can change. So we need to send them uh, course corrections uh, to get that antenna back in line so we can continue to um, communicate with and direct to uh those spacecraft so both of them are doing that so pretty darn awesome so let's switch gears a little bit and talk about what's current in space right now and please please tell me you're even half excited as i am right now about this this is really really cool it's it's despite what's going on in 2020 despite your political leanings despite uh covid this is a very exciting year to be alive in right now. Uh, one of the things that's happening that's extremely uh, cool um, is what SpaceX is doing. So in two days, there's going to be a very monumental event that's going to take place. Um, it's actually, uh, this is now Friday the 13th. Uh, so not even two days now. This is going to happen tomorrow, which will be Saturday, November 14th. At uh, 1949 Eastern Standard Time, which for those of you who don't like um, military time or 24-hour clock, that's 7.49 p.m. uh, Eastern Standard Time. Astronauts Mike Hopkins, Vic Glover, Shannon Walker, along with uh, JAXA astronaut uh, Sochi Noguchi, are going to board the SpaceX Crew Dragon and launch into space heading to the ISS. We spoke about the uh, Crew Dragon in one of our other episodes, but it has uh, passed all of its tests, and it is ready to take uh, humans aboard it uh, to the uh, International Space Station. On November 10th, uh, so only uh, three days ago, NASA certified the Crew Dragon and issued them a human rating certification. And what that does is that confirms that SpaceX made all, met all of NASA's requirements uh, for safely carrying astronauts on the Crew Dragon, uh, and they'll be aboard the Falcon 9 launch vehicle. So extremely important for them to get that. Uh, there you know, been some contention between SpaceX and NASA in the past, uh, but both agencies are extremely excited. Uh, great collaboration to make this happen, uh, to make commercial spaceflight uh, available. It's not just the government running it, but uh, but 
you know, commercial entities and be able to do it uh, effectively and safely. There was a uh, issue that with the Falcon nine that they found a couple days ago, Uh, it did have a valve that they had to replace. And this was already has already been done. They did a a static test fire of it to uh, validate that valve. It passed the static test. So right now everything is a go and barring any issues with weather, uh, Saturday should just be an awe-inspiring day. Other things, did you know there's a comet heading our way? There is. Uh, but unfortunately, it's not going to be bright enough to be seen by the unaided eye. But if you have a telescope, you should be able to see it. Comet C2020M3 is going to make its closest approach to Earth this Saturday. So that will be November 14th. So there's a couple exciting things going on this Saturday that you can uh, look up in the sky. And and if you're in an area around where the uh, launch is taking place, um, take some great pictures. Uh, if not, if you look on um, SpaceX's webpage, if you look at NASA's webpage, there are going to be some really glorious pictures of the launch. Uh, we wish the, um, the crew... Godspeed. We wish them um, a safe flight. Uh, hope they're very productive while they're at the space station and their time up there and that they uh, come home safely. Well, let's close out with our Constellation of the Week. Well, since this episode paid tribute to Voyager 1 and 2 mission, let's give it up for one of the possible constellations that the Voyagers could be heading toward right now. And that's the uh Camelopardalis. Okay, it is a pretty boring constellation. Blame the Voyagers, not me. And although its name would seem to be a derivative of a camel, uh, it actually originally was thought to kind of look like a camel. Uh, that, that's It's not. It's actually a derivation of the Latin word for giraffe. Uh, it is kind of a um, not very bright uh, constellation not all of its stars can be seen in certain areas um, so if you're in a not extremely dark area you won't see all the stars and that's why some people uh, thought it looked like um, a camel but if you see the entire constellation it does definitely look more like a giraffe with the long neck it was discovered in uh, 1624 and it's actually the 18th largest constellation if you look at it per area. Uh, there's no myth associated with it uh, because the Greeks uh, didn't see it. They thought that that uh, region of the sky that it occupies was actually empty. And although it's dim, it can be seen in the northern hemisphere. It's in the same neighborhood as Cassiopeia and Cephas, um, along with Ursa Major and Minor. So in that same area of the sky. And although it doesn't contain any uh, messier objects, uh, it does have three stars that are thought to have uh, planetary systems around them. Well, I told you it wasn't a real exciting constellation, so excuse me for that. But I do promise to have more exciting constellation on the next episode, so I sure hope you tune in then. In the meantime, uh, make sure to tune in and watch the historic launch of the SpaceX Crew Dragon on Saturday. Go SpaceX! That'll wrap up this week's podcast. 
Make sure to join me next week as we continue our love affair with space. You can reach me with feedbacks and comments at Twitter at For the Love of Space. And remember, if you don't love space, what's the point? <laughs>